Good morning, church. At long last, we have come to the end of our study in 1 Peter. Uh, We began this series at the end of April, and now it's nearly the end of the summer. Can you believe summer is almost over? It's a little sad, I know, sorry. The theme of our study in 1 Peter has been holy living in a hostile world. And this morning, we're going to look at the end of this letter, the last half of chapter 5, you ever get to the end of a conversation, maybe it's like a phone call with somebody and, and you try to cram in all the rest of your thoughts in the last 30 seconds? Like you had 10 minutes to talk, you have 10 things to say, you said one of them in eight and a half minutes, and then you've got a minute and a half to like smush everything in at the very end. That's what we're going to see today at the end of First Peter. Except Peter, he didn't waste any time in the first couple of chapters. I mean, he, he has a lot of great things to say, but he does cram a whole lot into these last nine verses that we'll read this morning. A lot of commands, a lot of theology, a lot of final greetings and love. We've got a lot to cover, but it's going to be great. Last week, Don Cheney gave us a great message on the first half of 1 Peter 5. Peter exhorted the elders of the church, the pastors, to shepherd the flock of God. Be good shepherds, he commands. Don't lord your authority over the sheep, um, but serve as humble shepherds. In fact, Peter ended that first paragraph with a very loose quotation of the Old Testament. He said, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's where Peter is going to pick it up in verse 6 of our text today. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. We do have a couple of ushers who have Bibles. If you need a Bible, slip up a hand. We are happy to give you one. And this is our gift to you if you need a Bible to take home with you. 1 Peter 5, we're starting in verse 6. Peter writes, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Notice how he begins that. Therefore, because God gives grace to the uh, humble and he opposes the proud, therefore, humble yourselves. That seems like a pretty straightforward piece of advice, doesn't it? Notice how Peter, though, throws in there a humbling thought to help us with this simple command. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We are under God's mighty hand. That in itself should be a very humbling thought for all of us. But what does that mean? I used to think of it like this. I'm the big brother in my family. How many of you are the oldest siblings? How many of you have a younger sibling? So I'm the big brother. and, And for me, I was always the biggest of my siblings as well. Not just the oldest, but the biggest as well. Uh, I have a biological brother who's two years younger than me. I have an adopted brother and adopted sister who are many years younger than me. And as boys like to do, I would frequently wrestle around with my younger brothers. I was 15 and my youngest brother was two. (laughs) It it didn't take much for me to humble him under my mighty hand. Right? You, you know how that is. I could hold his head in that stiff arm and he's, you know, doing one of these and not going anywhere. Or I'd get him down and hold him there till he tapped all in good fun. But he was humbled under my mighty hand. Now, that is how I used to think of it. That might be too aggressive an image for the way that Peter describes God here. 
The mighty hand of God is a phrase used throughout the Old Testament in reference to God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. That's where this phrase has its roots. Moses says of God in Exodus 3.19, he says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Later on in Exodus 32, Moses says to God, you have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand. Moses says in Deuteronomy 5, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Do you see the way that this word or this phrase is used in the Old Testament? Unlike my bully example of, of wrestling my younger brothers, God's mighty hand is that which led the Israelites to freedom. It's in that mighty hand that we rest as believers. The humility part comes not only from a recognition of God's infinitely great power, but from the fact that that power acted on behalf of God's people. It freed you and I. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And yet, God gave it. And that is indeed a humbling thought. You see how Peter does this, putting this together? We sometimes, I think, get the idea of humility wrong as Christians. Last year, one of the best books that I read was written by a guy named Kelly Capick. Uh, the book was called You're Only Human. It's a great book. I would recommend it to everybody here who are busy people in a busy culture. But Capic has some great ideas and great thoughts on humility. I wanted to share these with you because I can't say it any better than he can. He writes, Christians have often grounded the need for humility in our sin. It is very tempting to tell people that the reason they should be humble is that they are sinners. This mistake confuses humility with self-loathing. Instead of starting with sin, we must ground our theology of humility in the goodness of creation. Humility is a distinctly biblical virtue because it begins with the knowledge that there is a good creator Lord and we are the finite creatures he made to live in fellowship with him. Humility consists in a recognition of and a rejoicing in the good limitations that God has given us. That's great. Humility does not stem from you thinking of yourself as a, a sinful worm, in his words. It stems from you realizing that you are a created creature dependent on God and on others. We need God. And God's mighty hand is a humble reminder that he provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. 400 years in Egypt and the Israelites were no closer to being free than they, when they started. And then God. And that's what humbles us. Peter connects this idea with humility, you notice, with what I call the archenemy of humility, anxiety. These two concepts, humility, anxiety, are forever at odds. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, what does that look like exactly? Then he adds this phrase, casting all your anxiety on him. Humble is the imperative. That's the command here. Humble yourselves. Casting is what we call a participle. It's attached to the command and it further defines what that is, how that looks, and how we should obey that command. Casting is, uh, you could literally uh, use it of, of throwing an object, like throwing a baseball really fast. Cast your anxiety off of your shoulders and upon the shoulders of God. Anxiety is the supervillain of humility. Well, how so? 
What is anxiety? Well, there are all sorts of clinical and psychological definitions that we could attach to that word, none of which I'm going to give you. But let me give you a 1 Peter 5 definition of anxiety. Anxiety is what happens when we forget that we are in the mighty hand of God. Anxiety is when we think that we need to leave Egypt by ourselves. Anxiety is when we forget that God cares for us. Anxiety is when we are so earthly-minded, so present-day focused, that we forget God will exalt us at the proper time. Now, I'm I'm not meaning to minimize uh, those of you who struggle with anxiety. I recognize it's a real thing, and it's a growing thing in our busy culture. Uh, But I I do want to push against the tendency to think of it in just clinical or psychological terms. We need to think of it in a theological way as well. The more we put on our plates, the more we think we can accomplish without God, the more anxious we become. But the Bible says here, God cares for you. If you're a believer, you rest in the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves. Realize that you cannot do everything. Rely on God, rely on others, and that is the beginning of humility. And like many other passages of Scripture say, God promises that the humble will one day be exalted Humility leads to future reward. And that's just the first two verses. Look at verses 8 and 9. We're going to pack a lot in here. Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, before I say a word about being of sober spirit, let me comment on this analogy with the devil prowling around as a roaring lion. I want you to put yourself into the shoes of a first century AD Christian. Who was the enemy at that time? That's right. If you were to ask Christians in Peter's day, who is your enemy? I guarantee you that the vast majority of them, if they were just thinking off the cuff, they would probably say Rome or they would say Nero. Emperor Nero was the enemy of Christians in Peter's day. The believers were scattered all throughout the ancient world. They were being persecuted for their faith. The Roman Empire was leading the charge in that persecution. But notice how Peter qualifies the true enemy of believers. He says it's the devil. He is the ultimate adversary. He is the true enemy of all Christians. Now I want to make sure that we settle this in our minds today. Because it is very easy for us to think of other people or other organizations or other things as our enemies. At the risk of being very offensive, let me just be very clear. The Democrats are not our enemies. The Republicans are not our enemies. Target and Budweiser are not our enemies. The public school boards are not our enemies. Now to be clear, again, the devil sometimes uses these things in his schemes against believers. The word devil literally means slanderer. The the devil uses anti-Christian agendas to slander believers and further the causes of darkness. So can Satan work through Democrats? Yes, he can. Can he work through Republicans? Yes, he can. Can he work through school boards? Yes, he can. 
But these people and these organizations and these agendas are not our number one enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual rulers and powers of darkness. Now that being said, we're going to see in this text that more believers need to rise up and be aware of and resist the schemes of the devil. As a whole, Christians are getting pummeled in our culture, aren't they? We are allowing the devil to walk all over us with his schemes. We need more Christian politicians. We need more Christian school board members. We need more Christian doctors and scientists and lawyers. Are there Christian lawyers? Is that a thing? I, I don't know. We need more of them if, if they're out there. I'm joking. But the devil is real. The devil is active. I think what Peter does here is he pushes against two extremes in our culture today as Christians. Some people on one side of the table, they see the devil everywhere doing everything. The devil is in politics. The devil is in my house. The devil made me burn my cookies. The devil is in my cat. Like the devil, no joke. One time I got a phone call from a woman. This is like one of my first years of ministry. I got a phone call from a woman and she said, I think my cat is possessed by the devil. And I said to her, Ma'am, all cats are possessed by the devil, as far as I understand, biblically. Drive it, drive it out of your house. Drive it away. But, but some people see the devil in everything, right? I mean, Satan is everywhere. He's doing everything. He's so busy. Now, the other extreme, though, is just as dangerous. Some people don't think of Satan at all. Satan's not doing anything. He's not real. He's not active. We're not worried about what he's up to. Peter here tells us Satan is very real. He is active. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And yet, Peter says, we can resist him. If we are firm in our faith, we resist the devil and his ability to devour us. Being firm in something means that you do not waver in it. You know where you stand, you know the truth of Scripture, and you do not allow cultural influences to sway you one way or the other. Being firm in our faith here is linked to having a sober spirit. Being on the alert means you can't be spiritually drunk. You know what it looks like. Maybe you know what it feels like to be physically drunk. If your job requires vigilance, you can't do it well if you're drunk. Well, Peter says our job as Christians require that kind of vigilance. We can't do it well if we are spiritually drunk on the ways of this world. Drunk with the temptations of this world. We've got to keep our minds and our hearts alert and focused and firm in the word of truth. Go back to that lion analogy. How many of you were worried about a lion when you came here at church today? I mean, none of us wake up in the morning and say, I'm scared that if I go to my mailbox, I'll get mauled by a ferocious lion. Now, you, go back to, you can go back to Israel today, modern-day Israel, no lions out there anymore. But back in Peter's day, this was a very real threat. It was a wilderness. There was a danger of being devoured by a lion when you walked to the well. And that's not the same thing in our culture today. But Peter tells us that there are there is a devil out there that prowls like a roaring lion waiting to devour you. What does that mean? How does a devil devour you like a lion? Here in this context, when a believer caves to his or her suffering, Satan has won a victory. When we realize that our suffering for our faith is also being experienced by believers all over the world, though, 
we have won the victory and resisted the devil as a prowling lion. That, that's a great thought here. Peter reminds us there are people outside of this room, outside of this city, outside of this country that are experiencing far greater persecutions than we will ever know. And that should motivate us to stand firm today. Now think about it like this. When I was a teenager, I went to a public high school and that was when I first started living out my faith for the Lord. And there were times that I struggled with persecution. I would be teased. I would be picked on for my faith. One of the things during that time that really helped me as a believer is I found this book uh, that was put out by Voice of the Martyrs. You might remember this. It was associated with DC Talk. It's called, I think it was called Jesus Freaks. It's right, out, right when they put that, that album out or whatever, that CD out. Remember them, DC Talk? Well, this book was filled with examples of believers who were persecuted and stood firm in their faith. Page after page, chapter after chapter, people who endured persecution much worse than I would ever endure, and they stood firm in it. And that, for me, told me I'm not alone. I'm not alone in what I'm going through. In fact, there are people that have suffered far greater than me that have stayed fir stood firm in it, and therefore, I ought to as well. Give you another example. I, I went through a pretty traumatic trial at my previous church, faced slander and persecution, I would call it, rebellion and sin. You wouldn't believe some of the stories I could tell you, which I won't today. But what was amazing to me was as I was going through this, during and even after, I was getting calls from pastors, some of whom I didn't even know. I still don't know to this day how some of them heard about this, but I was getting calls from them and emails from them saying, brother, you are not alone. Brother, I went through the same thing. Brother, I'm going through the same thing. Brother, you could take out the names of the people in your church and put the names of the people in my church, and we are, we are identical here. Church, you are not alone in your struggle for your faith. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how you're facing persecution, but you are not alone. Others have suffered long before us. Others will suffer long after us and even greater challenges than we have faced. Believers all over the world today are suffering persecution and challenges in their faith, and they are enduring it firm in spirit, resisting the devil. Praise God. We are not alone in what we go through. And Peter gives us a beautiful promise attached to that command. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful promise. Let's break this down. First, notice how temporary are the natures of the trials that we face in this life. Contrast the temporary nature of our trials with the eternal rewards that are yours in the next life. That's how Peter begins this. He says, again in verse 10, after you have suffered for, for a little while. When we are suffering, don't we always feel like we're going to suffer this forever? We always have this thought of like, when will this end? Trials in our life seem to go on forever and ever. You find yourself thinking like, like Lord, is there going to be relief at all for this? Whether it's suffering a physical ailment, chronic illness, suffering something financial, suffering a relational issue, maybe a trial of persecution like Peter's talking about here, sometimes we lose focus and we feel like this is only it. But when we compare the trials of today with the scope of eternity, 
These trials are not even a single drop in the ocean of forever. You're going to look back a hundred billion trillion years from now and wonder, why was I so worried about that? Why was I so obsessed about that? What, what is 60 years of chronic illness when compared to 60 trillion years of eternal bliss? What is 60 years of persecution when compared to 600 quadrillion years of perfect peace? When we have that eternal perspective, can we endure the trials on this earth? Absolutely, if we focus on eternity. Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while, there's promise in that little while. That little while might be just a few days, maybe a few weeks or months or even years. But when compared to eternity, it's still nothing more than a little while. Now second, notice how Peter describes God here. This is awesome. He says, the God of all grace. Now what is grace? Grace is undeserved, unearned love and favor. Receiving something that we have not worked for and we have not earned. The God of all grace. Peter reminds us in the midst of our suffering that any good that we receive from God is by God's great grace and love. That's another humbling thought, isn't it? And he adds to that, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Remember how this letter began? Peter began by talking to elect exiles, those who are called according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If you are saved, you are called, you are chosen, you are elect. That's a truth of Scripture. Your election rests in the grace of God. I mean, yes, you responded to the gospel, you willingly accepted the gospel by faith, but your calling and your election were still at the same time, without contradiction, totally a gracious choice of God. And notice the ultimate goal of that calling. He called you to his eternal glory in Christ. To be called is not just an invitation to accept salvation. This calling means that God has secured you until his goal is accomplished of you enjoying his eternal glory forever. But church, it gets even better than that. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. How does that sound? Who wants a piece of that this morning? Do you want your salvation to be confirmed? I do. I remember struggling with this a lot as a young teenage Christian. I, I, I couldn't always be, I, I was never sure that I was saved. I, how can I be sure I didn't lose my salvation? Every time I sinned, every time I struggled, I wondered, am I really a Christian? Have I lost it? Do I have to walk the walk again? Do I have to go to the altar again, say the prayer again, raise my hand again? Well, guess what? Then I stumbled upon passages like this. The God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ and he himself will confirm that in you. He will confirm it in you. Not you will have to confirm it yourself. It's God's work in you. What kind of a confirmation would it be if we could lose it? We want to be confirmed. We want to be strengthened in our faith. Established, perfected. Who wants to be perfected here? All these things sound great. 
What Peter's doing is he's connecting our temporary experiences, suffering as persecuted Christians, to the eternal promises that God has secured for us in future glory. Doesn't matter how much we suffer here as Christians. Satan will never take away your salvation. He can't. Satan would have to force God to stop being God in order to remove your salvation once you truly have it. The devil would have to get God to break his promises in this passage to call you to an eternal glory in Christ in order to get you to lose your salvation. The devil would have to stop God from perfecting and confirming and strengthening and establishing you, which God has promised that he himself will do in you to get you to lose your salvation. It cannot happen. Peter calls us to an eternal perspective, a global perspective. Think of other believers around the world going through the same thing. He calls us to consider the promises of the Father and the character of Christ, and he says, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Not to Satan be dominion. Satan has a temporary and a restricted dominion. He will not prowl around like a roaring lion for long. But Christ's dominion, as we sung today, will be forever and ever. Amen. Doesn't that sound like a great place to end a letter? It's not. (laughs) Peter has just a few more things to say. We'll unpack these verse by verse. They're all instructive for us. Look at verse 12. Peter says, Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have briefly written to you, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Sylvanus is a a long form of the word Silas. Same name, uh, Silas, Sylvanus, Sylvanus, Silas. They're the same name, one's short, one's long. It's kind of like Brian and Bry, or Jeremy and Jer, or Austin and Aw, right? (laughs) It's a short, short form of the word. It's very common. This word was a very common name in Peter's day. Uh, So we can't be sure of it, but my guess is that this is probably the Silas that you recognize from other passages of Scripture. Silas that's mentioned in the book of Acts. Silas that's mentioned in Paul's letters. Uh, Acts 15.32 calls him a prophet. A couple verses earlier, it calls him one of the leaders of the early church. And all in all, he was a great guy. Peter highlights him as an example of faithfulness here. At the very least, Peter says, here's a great example of what a faithful believer looks like. He might have been the guy that took this letter to the churches. He might have been the guy that helped Peter write the letter. There's a possibility that. But Peter encourages us by saying, look at this faithful believer. He stood firm in the midst of persecution. And he says, I'm writing to exhort you to testify of God's true grace. He wants us to know and to be motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose again, and he has called you to himself. Put your faith in him and stand firm in that faith. Check out Silas. He's a great example of that. And then Peter sends a few greetings in verse 13. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now let's deal with Peter's so-called son Mark first before we talk about she who is in Babylon. We'll deal with the easier one before the more difficult one. Peter's son Mark is probably the same guy that we know as John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark. 
He's another person that we know through the book of Acts and also through some of Paul's writings. He wasn't Peter's literal son. He was probably his spiritual son, like a father-son relationship in a, in a discipleship kind of way. But Mark and Peter had a very storied history together. You might be familiar with Mark's gospel. Church history tells us that Mark wrote his gospel based on Peter's testimony, based on Peter's eyewitness. Mark's gospel is, in a sense, Peter's gospel because it tells his story. It's interesting that Peter mentions Mark here at the very end of his letter when he mentions him in connection with standing firm in your faith through persecution. Mark was not always a believer who stood firm in his faith. Acts 12 tells us that Mark accompanied Paul and Barnabas on one of their earliest missionary journeys. But then a couple chapters later in the book of Acts, we find out at some point in that trip, Mark deserted them. It was such a serious moment that when Paul and Barnabas went to get together and go on another trip, they had this big feud about whether or not to bring Mark along again. He deserted us in the past. Should we bring him or not? Now, the good news is Mark has a redemptive arc in the Bible. He went with Barnabas on his trip and later on was even redeemed in Paul's eyes. He was faithful yet again. We know this because at the very last letter that Paul wrote, uh, he mentions Mark favorably as someone who helped him in a great way in ministry. Mark is a redemptive character in Scripture. And what I like about this is Peter ends his letter by mentioning Mark, and I don't think it's by mistake. Mark is a man just like us. He's human just like us. Uh, first, he ran from persecution. He collapsed under the pressure, just like Peter, just like you and I. But God's calling and God's grace worked in Mark's heart, and he later found that he was faithful in ministry. Maybe you haven't dealt with persecution in the right way before. We haven't really dealt with this idea in the book of Peter. We've talked a lot about standing firm. We've talked a lot about persecution, but we haven't talked a lot about the what if. What if you failed? What if you were persecuted or you had an opportunity to share your faith and because of your cowardness or because of, of your, your insecurities or because of whatever, you failed the test? What if you even denied the faith like Peter? What if you ran from ministry like Mark? Church, there is grace for you. There is grace for Peter. There is grace for Mark. And there is grace for you and for me. I gave you a few examples from my life before of when I was persecuted under, under my faith. I, I got to tell you, I didn't always stand firm in it. There, there are regrets I have in my life of the way I dealt with things. But there is grace for me, just like there is grace for you. Praise the Lord. Mark stands with Peter at the end of this letter and greets the church. I'm sure there are a lot of believers Peter could have mentioned, a lot of people around him, but he mentions Mark as if to say, here is a great example of a redeemed man who eventually stood firm in his faith. Now, Peter also says, she who is in Babylon sends you greetings. Who is she who is in Babylon? A lot of different opinions on this one, some of them more fun than others. I've read a, not a few commentaries who suggest that she who is in Babylon, and I'm not joking about this, this is in print at places, 
Some people believe she who is in Babylon is a reference or Peter's way of referring to his wife. Now, I've got a lot of nicknames for my wife, none of which I'm going to share with you today. But I've never called my wife she who is in Babylon. What a terrible nickname that would be. I, I don't think that's what Peter means by that. Some people think he's referring to literal, actual ancient Babylon in Mesopotamia. Like literal ancient Babylon. But by the first century AD, Babylon was basically deserted. There wasn't anyone there anymore. It was desolate, nearly uninhabited. So my guess is he's probably using ba Babylon as a metaphor for something. But a metaphor for what? Most likely, Peter uses Babylon as a metaphor for Rome. Church history tells us that Peter was most likely writing this letter from Rome, and Jewish literature from the time that Peter wrote oftentimes referred to Rome as Babylon. Now, Rome, of course, was where Nero resided, the Emperor Nero persecuting Christians. It was where persecution was very, very active in Peter's day. So calling Rome Babylon was kind of a derisive way of referring to that city. I have a, a, a friend who um, left the church because of some terrible things that had gone on in that church, some, a lot of sin and difficulties that he experienced, and he left the church. And uh, to this day, he will not say the real name of that church out loud. He prefers the phrase from the book of Revelation, the synagogue of Satan. That's how he refers to the church. And I think it's kind of like that, what Peter's doing here. I'm not going to call it Rome. I'm not going to dignify it with that word. I'm going to call it Babylon because that's what it is. Babylon is a nickname for Rome. Well, if that's the case, then she who is in Babylon is not referring to just a single person or a single woman. It's probably a way to refer to the church that is in Rome. The persecuted believers who remained faithful and remained where they were under this persecution. Now, I was struck by this this week. It was extremely helpful for me. In Peter's day, many, many people, many Christians were scattered because of the persecution. They fled for their lives all over the world. But this verse is telling us that some stayed. The unbelievers in Rome needed Jesus too. Let me go back to that example of today's public schools and school boards and all that. Christians today, they have three primary, three main choices of what to do with their kids. You can homeschool your kids. You can send them to a private school, Christian school maybe, something like that. Or you could send them to the public school. Now that last option has a lot of potential for corruption, doesn't it? Public schools today are falling to secular agendas much worse than when you or I were in school. I went to a public school, as I said. We might as well call some public schools Babylon or the synagogue of Satan. Some parents have chosen to scatter, to withdraw their children, to put them in a Christian school or to homeschool them where they know that those kids are going to be protected and they are going to be taught Christian values. Some parents have chosen to keep their kids in public schools. Maybe it's out of necessity, financial reasons. Maybe because you believe that your children are strong enough to stand firm under that kind of pressure. I don't think the Bible condemns either option. There is wisdom in both. We see some Christians in Peter's day who have stayed in Rome during a horrible, horrible time of persecution. The Romans need Jesus. And if every Christian left Rome, who would be there to share the gospel with the Romans? And we see some Christians in Peter's day 
have scattered. They packed their bags and they fled. And nowhere do we see that condemned in Scripture. That's okay too. Where they fled to, they took the gospel. And God used that fleeing to bring the gospel into different parts of the world back then. You as a parent need to make informed decisions for your kids if you are a parent in here. The major difference between Peter's day and his example in our day is that we're dealing with kids in this example. We've got to weigh a lot of different factors, don't we? Are your kids really mature enough to deal with that pressure? Are you active enough in their lives to counterbalance what they're receiving in school? How aggressive are the tactics of your particular school district? How, how aggressive are you in sharing the gospel and discipling your children? These are all questions that are going to be used to help make a wise decision in your family's life. Informed decisions about what to do with your kids. But we don't want to look down on either side, no matter which way you go. Because Peter addresses both in his letter. The scattered believers and those who chose to stay. But church, make no mistake, we live in Babylon. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you and your kids. You must stand firm in your faith and be vigilant. You must be the greatest influence in your children's lives. To do that, it's both quality and quantity time. I, I'm convinced more and more as a dad that quality time is quantity time. Be with your kids. Spend time together. Disciple them. Let them see you walk firm in your faith and then watch them as they walk firm in theirs. Now we've come to the last verse in 1 Peter. He says in verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now we want to keep in mind, Peter wrote this before the days of COVID, right? <laughs> greet one another with a kiss of love. Ew, that's icky today, germs. I kiss my wife, I kiss my kids, good night, maybe a couple family members or two on the cheek, but that's about it. Right? The standard form of greeting back then, though, at times, was a kiss of love. Today, we might prefer the holy handshake or a holy fist bump or maybe the Christian side hug or something like that. Now, if you want to continue this practice in a literal way, Pastor Jeremy is back from his sabbatical, <laughs> and he is more than happy to be at the back door after service in order to greet you with kisses of love. But Peter ends this letter with these words to greet one another, to, to have fellowship, to have communion, because that's part of the bond that's going to hold us together as a church. Love one another, he might as well have said. And then he says these beautiful words, peace be to you all who are in Christ. Isn't that the truth? It is only those who are in Christ who can claim true peace, true shalom. Peace comes from knowing our Savior. Peace comes from the security of our salvation, being sure in our calling, our election, our identity in the Lord. Peace comes from a God of all grace who confirms, strengthens, perfects, and establishes you. Peace comes from casting all your anxieties upon God, knowing that he cares for you and that his mighty hand is upon you. In the midst of a hostile world, we can enjoy peace with God. In the midst of our trials, we can rest in God's peace. 
I hope that in some way this letter has given you courage to act as holy exiles in a hostile world. I hope it's encouraged you to stand firm in your faith no matter what comes against you. And I hope it's given you a renewed sense of identity of who you are in Christ and the peace that you have as a result of that. May the peace of Christ be with all of you who are in him. Let's pray. God of all grace, we praise you for our calling, for our election, for our identity. We praise you, Lord, for the promise to perfect us, to confirm us, to strengthen and establish us. And we praise you, Lord, for the promise that our suffering will only be for a little while and then eternity, a bliss. God, I pray that you would help us to have that perspective today. Help us to live as holy exiles in a hostile world. And I pray as a result of that, the gospel would go out to the nations. People would be discipled in the name of Jesus Christ. And those disciples in turn would make disciples. And Lord, may we see the kingdom spread throughout this world. And as a result of the way that we live here in this part of this world, I pray that there are believers touched and impacted all over the world. I pray that there will be more people in heaven as a result of what we are doing in this church, as a result of what you are doing through us. And Lord, may we rejoice in that grace that you've offered through Jesus Christ. Help us to stand firm in our trials now, Lord, as we go from here. And may peace be with all these believers in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.